You never received an email from a Republican staff member with information claiming to come from spying? Well, is there such an email, sir? Yes. Yes, there is such an email. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. And you know about it. I got the feeling that something right. Judge Kavanaugh. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ and in Cottage Grove on KSO, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR, in New Orleans on WHIV. In Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. In Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ, Seattle's KODX, Red Bluff and Redding, California's KFOI, Round Mountain, California's KKRN, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM. 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day for your listening convenience on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, and Detour Talk. You can run, but you can't hide from the Bradcast, blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. A whole lot to get to, uh, including, well, Desi Doyen, last week we hit 900 episodes of the Green News Report. <laughs> yes, we did. So this week, the climate seems to be celebrating, I guess, uh, in a not very funny way, yeah, I'm sorry not, to say. Not fun at all. Five, count them, five Named storms right now surrounding the U.S. Hurricanes Florence, Isaac and Helene, tropical storms Paul and Olivia. But other than that, everything is fine. Why worry? Uh, Oh, here's why you should worry. Powerful Hurricane Florence grew still larger on Tuesday, according to Reuters, and is expected to bring days of rain, deadly flooding and power outages lasting weeks, weeks after it slams into the U.S. southeast coast later this week. The National Hurricane Center warned that winds and massive waves are going to pound coastal North and South Carolina when Florence makes landfall on Friday, and its rains will take a heavy toll for miles inland. So even if you think you're safe, you may not be inland from this storm and Uh, Just the fact that they are now talking about landfall for Florence on Friday instead of Thursday. Last time, I I think when we went off air last time, it was uh, they were previously uh, predicting it would land on Thursday. So the fact that it's now not going to hit until Friday in full, that means that the storm is slowing down. And that means much more rainfall for those in its path, as I understand this. Oh, yeah. And it also means that as it slows down, it gives it a lot more time to soak up all of that heat energy from the Atlantic Ocean, which is unusually warm right now. 
Heat energy, water, and winds currently at 140 miles per hour. The storm is uh, Category 4 right now. It's expected to get bigger and stronger, according to the National Hurricane Center. North Carolina Governor Roy Cooper said, quote, This storm is a monster. It's extremely dangerous, life-threatening, and an historic hurricane. The forecast shows Florence stalling over North Carolina, bringing what he calls days and days of rain. Communities in Florence's path could be without electricity for weeks, according to FEMA. Donald Trump on Tuesday signed declarations of emergency for North Carolina, South Carolina and Virginia and citing the government's, and I'm not kidding, uh, their excellent work on Hurricane Maria. Trump said, we are totally prepared. Yes, that's what he said before Hurricane Maria ended up taking some 3000 lives of U.S. citizens around this time last year. That is more than died uh, after Katrina in in, uh, New Orleans or even in the 9-11 attacks 17 years ago. So um, don't put too much confidence into what the president of the United States is telling you. Please be safe. So, uh, yeah, our, uh, we'll have more on Florence in our 901st <laughs> Green News Report coming up a little bit later with, of course, Desi Doyen uh, with news on not just Florence, but another major storm that is also threatening the U.S. this week. But, of course, uh, Florence, which has really been worrying me since it, uh, it started brewing up last week. Uh, But also on today's GNR, um, some good news, I guess, as uh, actually some good news for for sure, as a good old California steps up with several new and quite impressive climate related actions. Really impressive. In fact, Uh, Jerry Brown, Governor Jerry Brown, has vowed to make California a world leader on climate in response to Trump's vow to drop out of the Paris Climate Accord. And even before Trump took office, and was said to be considering stopping satellite data collection of 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 climate information. Here's what uh, Brown had to say about that back in December of 2016 when he was hopping mad about it. So we got the scientists, we got the lawyers and we're ready to fight. We're ready to defend. We have the national labs and we have the political clout and sophistication for the battle. We have the laws, we have the tools of enforcement, and we have the political will. And we will set the stage, we'll set the example, and whatever Washington thinks they're doing, California is the future. We will not stand back. Some people say that they're going to turn off the satellites that are monitoring the uh, climate. And if Trump turns off the satellites, California will launch its own damn satellite. (laughs) We're going to collect that data. That was Jerry Brown back in December of 2016, and he seems to be making good on that promise. Bigly, yes. bigly this week. Yes, he is, as uh, as is uh, State Senate Majority Leader Kevin DeLeon, who is also, by the way, running for Senate against uh, longtime incumbent Senator Dianne Feinstein. That's right. Uh, DeLeon was the author of uh, one of the uh, key measures that uh, Jerry Brown signed into law this week. We'll talk about that in our GNR a little bit later. And also coming up, I will be joined by the former senior U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee attorney 
whose emails were stolen some years ago by a GOP operative who was uh, working with uh, now the U.S. Supreme Court nominee, Brett Kavanaugh, who was himself an operative back in the George W. Bush White House. Uh, Kavanaugh, we've learned over the past week, lied about what he knew at the time about the stolen emails in question from that guy. And uh, the woman whose emails were stolen now says that the D.C. Court of Appeals judge, Brett Kavanaugh, should be impeached whether he's confirmed to the U.S. Supreme Court or not for lying to Congress. She will uh, join us to discuss that fascinating twist in this uh, shameful storyline. But before we get there, uh, at the same time, this is the final week of the 2018 midterm primary season before the crucial November 6th midterm elections. New Hampshire voters headed to the polls on Tuesday to vote in their state's primary. Uh, perhaps the most watched race in New Hampshire on Tuesday is in its first congressional district where the seat has literally gone back and forth between the same two Republican and Democratic uh, candidates for the last 10 years. And now the Democrat who currently occupies the seat is retiring. So there are very crowded primaries in both parties vying for the nominations for that first district seat. Voters will be choosing from 17 candidates for that open U.S. House seat. Eleven Democrats, including Bernie Sanders' own son, by the way, Levi, is running on the Democratic side. And there are six Republicans on Tuesday's primary ballot for that seat. So we'll have results, presumably, on our next broadcast, along with any voting or tabulation problems that may occur along the way. Then on Wednesday, Rhode Islanders will vote in the last primary contest, last federal primary contest of the year. And on Thursday, New Yorkers will vote in state and local primaries, which for some reason they run separately from their federal primaries which were held back in June, and they're running this on a Thursday. So, um, you know, if you're listening uh, in New York, make sure you participate. Talking to you folks out there at Radio Free Brooklyn, among others. Also up in uh, Palinville, New York, on WLPP. Of course, I always caution that problems regarding voting and tabulation don't necessarily appear until days or weeks or even months after elections. And we have a couple of those Matters um, to hit quickly today in one of the states that we've been covering a whole lot in recent months for some reason. That would be the great state of Kansas. I see the look in your face already, Desi, as <laughs> if to say, uh-oh. Oh, dear. What now? Yes. Well, here's what now. A Republican nominee from Olathe, who we talked about a few days ago from Olathe, Kansas, uh, who had been arrested and charged with election fraud that Republican nominee for the state U.S. House of Representatives will remain on the November ballot anyway, even though he was arrested and charged with election fraud. That, according to an all-Republican state elections panel this week, Adam Thomas, the uh, Republican candidate for the 26th District State House seat, was arrested last Thursday and charged with election perjury. The decision by the uh, state panel, uh, the state objections board, is separate from the pending court case, which presumably moves ahead nonetheless, even as he's running for election for a seat in which, according to the charges, he committed fraud in order to get on the ballot. 
Democratic State Representative Vic Miller of Topeka had called for the investigation into Thomas back in June after presenting evidence that Thomas did not actually live in the district where he filed to run and did not reside in the house that was listed on his voter registration form and candidate filing. Uh, Miller, who is the attorney representing Thomas's Democratic challenger, Deanne Mitchell, said uh, that Thomas uh, wasn't uh, living in that house and the Constitution says he has to be. After posting bond last week, an attorney for Thomas called the situation, quote, Kansas dirty politics at its worst. Well, maybe, but the arrest and charges against Thomas were made by the Republican Johnson County, Kansas uh, prosecutor. So, you know, if it's dirty politics, I guess it's uh, Republican on Republican dirty politics. Both Kansas Secretary of State Chris Kobach, the state's chief election official, and the Kansas GOP have declined to comment on that case, even though we're uh, going a week since one of their candidates was arrested for election fraud. And despite the fact that Kobach has made his career out of claiming that there was massive fraud in Kansas elections and after convincing the state legislature to give him prosecutorial powers to fight fraud in the state, he's the only secretary of state in the nation to have such powers. In this case, the State Objections Board, which uh, allow is allowing Thomas to say on the ballot, includes the offices of the state lieutenant governor, the attorney general, and the secretary of state. They are all Republicans and could have decided to remove Thomas from the November ballot. They didn't, despite the pending charges against him. The attorney for Thomas, Michael Cuckelman, maintained that uh, Thomas will be acquitted in the criminal case, and that could be true, innocent until proven guilty after all. Cuckelman also argued that the objection itself to Thomas being on the ballot was not valid and questioned the motive uh, of the Democrats challenging his client's run for public office. He said, what we have here is the Democrat who's seeking the same seat, trying to kick the Republican off the ballot so that she's the only candidate listed on the ballot. Something about that ought to cause people to be concerned, said Cuckelman. Well, also something about the Republican candidate being arrested and charged by the Republican prosecutor ought to cause people to be concerned, it seems to me. But I don't know. Maybe that's just me. Uh, early Monday, the uh, same panel threw out a challenge to Chris Kobach's own narrow reported win in the GOP primary a few weeks back. A very narrow reported win. Just 343 votes out of some 317,000 cast in the Republican primary for Kansas governor, which Kobach, it appears, uh, has won, has been announced the winner of. The all-Republican State Board of Objections rejected um, a challenge from a Kansas activist to Chris Kobach's listing as the GOP nominee for governor on the November ballot after arguing that hundreds of legal votes were not counted in the primary election at all. The State Objections Board concluded that Davis Hammett of Topeka could not show 
that Kobach's narrow, very narrow victory over Governor Jeff Collier in that primary could be overturned by the issues that Hammett raised and rejected Hammett's argument uh, that Kobach's chief deputy, who sat on the objections board here, should not have been involved in the review to his challenge. Uh, so, you know, Kobach's own guy, Kobach's own deputy, was sitting on this objections board and said, no, I think it's all fine. And it was because Hammett could not show that Kobach would have lost. Collier, uh, before his uh, surprise concession just days after the primary and before all of the provisionals and late vote-by-mail ballots were actually tabulated, initially raised several of the same questions that Hammett did in his objections. Assistant Secretary of State Eric Rucker, that would be Kobach's Assistant Secretary of State, and the man who presided over the board's meeting said, quote, it is not merely that an objection has been made for one of the uh, for one of the appropriate grounds. You must also present evidence that this election would be overturned. In other words, we don't care if your vote got counted or not. You got to show that it would change the results. Forget about just the idea of counting. Well, votes. even though it wasn't counted, these are ballots that weren't counted. So who knows how do they know? Uh, yeah, who knows what actually would have been shown had they bothered to count those ballots? You know, we're talking about 343 votes out of 317,000 cast. Yes, every single ballot would make a difference. And that is a concern. The fact that ballots were not counted, according to Kobach's own guy on the panel, but the fact that Hammett wasn't able to show that counting those ballots would have made the difference. Of course, we, we don't know. Because those ballots were never looked at, because they were thrown out for whatever reason that, uh, yes, another one of Kobach's own appointees uh, chose to throw them out. Hammett said later that he couldn't show that Kobach's victory might be overturned because counties wouldn't give him the information about the voters whose ballots were not counted. They wouldn't even tell them whose ballots were not uh, included in the count. So this is a classic catch-22 that has haunted election challenges for years, not just in Kansas, but elsewhere. They, you know, where they, they say, well, there might have been problems, but you're not able to prove there's problems. Therefore, we're not even going to look into your challenge. And this problem has uh, gotten uh, demonstrably worse since the advent of computer voting and tabulation systems, which makes it nearly impossible for these challengers, uh, for the public, uh, you know, to be able to know what the results should have been. Also, Hammett said uh, counties aren't consistent in how they report the number of rejected ballots. Uh, so he doesn't even know exactly how many rejected ballots there were, much less who those people might have voted for. He did not uh, rule out a filing a lawsuit here. He said no. Uh, uh, None of my objections were addressed. They just ignored every single argument I made. Hammett is the founder and president of a voting rights group uh, named Loud Light. In addition to Kobach's top deputy running the meeting, Kobach's campaign was otherwise represented at the hearing by a former special assistant to Donald Trump, who endorsed uh, Kobach the day before the primary. Kobach advised Trump's presidential campaign and has advised the White House. He also served as the vice chair of Trump's now disbanded uh, so-called voter fraud commission. 
Hammett argued uh, that someone outside of Kobach's office should have replaced Kobach on the board itself instead of Rucker, his his right hand man, adding that this is a ridiculous board in need of reform. Hard to argue with that sentiment. And speaking of ridiculous boards in need of reform, after a week of hearings in the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee in which documents were revealed that suggest the president's nominee to a lifetime appointment on the U.S. Supreme Court, that would be Judge Brett Kavanaugh, appears to have lied repeatedly to Congress, which is illegal, in case you didn't know, Uh, During sworn testimony back in the early and mid 2000s, Republicans now nonetheless seem to remain on the track to confirm him despite those lies and despite the very narrow majority that Republicans currently enjoy in the U.S. Senate, which they could lose entirely in just under two months at the ballot box. But one of the senior Uh, Judiciary Committee attorneys whose stolen emails, she says, are at the heart of one of Kavanaugh's apparent lies. She argues that he should not only not be seated, he should be impeached, whether he's seated or not. That attorney, Lisa Graves, joins us next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance, now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Judge Merrick Garland may play a role in the vacant Supreme Court seat after all, according to Taylor Link over at Salon over the weekend. A liberal group has filed a criminal complaint against Brett Kavanaugh for allegedly perjuring himself In front of the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee, Garland, of course, was Barack Obama's nominee to the U.S. Supreme Court, who Senate Republicans refused for almost a year to allow a vote on or even to meet with him, claiming that the vacancy left by uh, Justice Antonin Scalia's death in February of 2016 was just too close to the November election and that the American people should therefore have a voice in the selection of the next Supreme Court nominee. In the meantime, Justice Anthony Kennedy's retirement in August of this year, just three months before the midterms, is already set to be filled by Kavanaugh, who Senate Republicans are pushing through at a record uh, record rate before they lose potentially lose their slim majority in the U.S. Senate this November. Ironically enough, Garland, who is still the chief judge of the D.C. Federal Circuit, was asked to rule upon this complaint or appoint a special panel of jurists to investigate the allegations. So it's possible that Garland himself could play a role as to whether Kavanaugh gets approved by the U.S. Senate. Uh, Kavanaugh, for his part, actually serves on Garland's uh, U.S. Court of Appeals in Washington, D.C. 
A similar complaint was referred on Monday to the Department of Justice, filed by the same Democratic-leaning group, for what it's worth. That complaint follows this exchange between Senator Patrick Leahy and Judge Kavanaugh last week during Kavanaugh's confirmation hearings in the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee, where Kavanaugh handled uh, most of the inquiries pretty easily with well-rehearsed responses, but this series of questions from Leahy clearly knocked Kavanaugh for a bit of a loop. Did anyone ever tell you they had a mole that provided them with secret information related to nominations? I, I don't recall the reference to a mole, uh, which sounds highly specific, but certainly it is common, again, the people behind you can probably refer to this, but it's common, I think, for everyone to talk to each other at times and share information. At least this was my experience. This is 20 years ago almost, where you would talk to people and the so committee. You, you never received an email from a Republican staff member with information claiming to come from spying on Democratic mole? Uh, I don't. I'm not going to rule anything out, Senator. Uh, but if, if I did, I wouldn't have thought that uh, anything, I, I wouldn't have thought that the literal uh, <laughs> uh, meaning of that. But I, wouldn't, I, I, it wouldn't have surprised you that uh, if you got an email saying you got that from somebody spying on the Well, is there such an email, sir? Well, yes, there is such an email, sir, perhaps a number of them. Much of Washington spent the past week focusing on whether Kavanaugh should be confirmed to the Supreme Court, writes Lisa Graves over at Slate. After the revelation of his confirmation hearings, the better question is whether he should be impeached from the federal judiciary. Graves writes she does not raise that question lightly, but says she's certain it must be raised. Newly released emails show that while Kavanaugh was working to move through President George W. Bush's judicial nominees in the early 2000s, he received confidential memos, letters and talking points of Democratic staffers that were stolen by GOP Senate aide Manuel Miranda. That includes research and talking points that Miranda stole from the Senate email server after Lisa Graves herself had written some of those documents for the Senate Judiciary Committee as she was serving as then the chief counsel for nominations for the minority. Receiving those memos and letters alone, she explains, is not an impeachable offense, but notes that Kavanaugh should be removed from the bench because he was repeatedly asked under oath as part of his 2004 and 2006 confirmation hearings for his current position on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit about whether he had received such information from Miranda. And each time back in 04 and 06, he falsely denied it. For example, she describes in 2004, Republican Senator Orrin Hatch asked Kavanaugh directly if he received, quote, any documents that appeared to you to have been drafted or prepared by Democratic staff members of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Kavanaugh responded unequivocally, no. Then in 2006, Democratic Senator Ted Kennedy asked Kavanaugh if he had any regrets about how he treated documents that he had received from Miranda that he later apparently learned were stolen. Kavanaugh rejected the premise of the question, restating that he never saw even one of those documents. Back then, however, says Graves, the senators did not have the emails that they have now. 
as have been obtained from Kavanaugh's time as a Bush White House staffer and operative, which show that Miranda, yes, sent Kavanaugh numerous documents containing what was plainly research by Democrats, documents that Graves herself had drafted. Any reasonable person, she argues at Slate, would have realized that they had been stolen, and certainly someone as smart as Kavanaugh would have too. But, she says, he lied under oath and did so repeatedly. That's why, without even getting into other reasonable objections to his nomination, he should not be confirmed. In fact, she adds, by his own standard, he should clearly be impeached. Joining us now to discuss all of this is Lisa Graves. She's president of the board of the Center for Media and Democracy, where she served as executive director for some eight years. She's now the co-founder of DocumentedInvestigations.org, launched last fall to investigate corporate influence on in our democracy. I'm guessing there's plenty to investigate there. And before all of that, she served as a senior advisor in all three branches of the federal government. She was deputy assistant AG at the U.S. Department of Justice. She then served as the chief counsel for nominations for the Senate Judiciary Committee, as I said, for Patrick, uh, Senator Patrick Leahy. And she also worked as the deputy chief for the U.S. court system in the division for lifetime appointed judges. So um, I guess like farmers insurance, she knows a thing or two because she's seen a thing or two. Lisa <laughs> Graves, uh, it's been a long time since we had you on air. Welcome back to the broadcast. Thank you so much. That's funny. That's the first time I've ever been uh, uh, introduced <laughs> by way of that ad, but it is a, it's a good slogan. It's a darn good slogan. Uh, and certainly in this case, I mean, all three positions in, in the federal government that you held seem to come into play here. Uh, before we get into the details on, on what Kavanaugh did or didn't do or what he knew, didn't know, uh, and what should be done about any of it as chief counsel for nominations for uh, the uh, Judiciary Committee under, uh, I believe, uh, Leahy was uh, then uh, a ranking member of the, that committee. Uh, what was your role specifically during the time in question here, during the George W. Bush presidency when Kavanaugh was helping to shepherd Bush's judicial nominees through uh, congressional confirmation? Well, I was the... Um Chief Nominations Counsel uh, for the Senate Judiciary Committee for Senator Patrick Leahy. I um, joined at the beginning of 2002 when Senator Leahy was the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Mm -hmm. um, and then I continued to work with him uh, and the committee um, and the caucus in 2003 and 2004 when Senator Leahy was the ranking, uh, ranking member of that committee. Um, and so um, uh, I was there for more than three years and uh, all I did every day, every night, was judicial nominations and trying to protect fair courts. So you actually wrote some of these uh, stolen memos that we now know that Kavanaugh did see back then. Was this the first that you uh, learned, these, these hearings this past week? Was this the first that you had learned that he actually, yes, did see those memos back during the confirmation process for Bush's judges? Yes, it was the first time that we saw evidence that he had um, seeing talking points, uh, draft materials, um, uh, co content from uh, the materials that were stolen. Um, we, um, I personally thought that uh, uh, he probably had the White House all he had. I, 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 we didn't know that, mm -hmm. certainly. Um, during the um, Senate investigation, um, as some of your listeners may recall, what happened was that in, in November of 2003, um, the Wall Street Journal published excerpts of some memos that were clearly from uh, Senate Democratic staff. 
mm-hmm. memos to their their bosses, and there was a uh, it was a shock, and uh, the Senate Sergeant at Arms um, cordoned off the Senate servers with police tape yeah. uh, to uh, uh, examine what had happened um, <clears throat> in that instance, and um, and and it was sort of so shocking what was happening. Um, at the time, in terms of a, 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 that sort of confidential information being um, taken, stolen, um, that Senator Hatch um, expressed his mortification that this theft had occurred, that these files had been taken, and, um, and assigned the um, U.S. Sergeant at Arms, who was a Republican, uh, Mr. Pickle, um, and who was appointed by a Republican, by Senator Frist, to lead an investigation of what happened. They hired forensic uh, investigators to examine the computer system of the Senate and of the Senate Judiciary Committee in particular. Um, and um, they uh, conducted a nearly four-month investigation. That investigation did not have subpoena power, and so it operated only um, with the voluntary consent of people it interviewed. Um, and I, I lay out this this sort of history because mm-hmm. uh, the timing and um, uh, is significant because uh, in in March of 2004, um, the Sergeant at Arms issued his report finding that Manny Miranda had taken those files along with at least one other staffer. Um, but uh, Manuel Miranda had refused to provide the Senate Sergeant at Arms with the names of his White House contacts. Um, and uh, there was a statement in the report that other um, staffers uh, might well have had uh, access to the files. Um, and in fact, there were um, at least uh, two or three other staffers who are identified um, as staffers, not necessarily by name, um, as having had and seen or seen the documents or having known how to obtain the documents. Um, and so the Senate Sergeant at Arms said that you know they could not conclude who had who had been involved, mm. who had seen uh, these stolen memos, but certainly that Manuel Miranda and another hatch staffer had been the primary uh, culprits. And uh, further, the the Sergeant at Arms recommended a referral to the U.S. Department of Justice uh, for a possible criminal investigation for violation of several, for several potential crimes uh, for, uh, for taking the documents, for stealing documents, as well as mm-hmm. uh, for um, uh, lying to investigators. And, and, um, and that's the context before which uh, uh, Brett Kavanaugh came to a hearing the very next month and was asked about these matters. Yeah, I was going to say, clearly Orrin Hatch had at least some concerns, uh, and he's still still on the Judiciary Committee. He's uh, retiring this year, but he's still on the Judiciary Committee. Uh, He was on the Judiciary Committee back in 2004 in that uh, hearing when he asked uh, Kavanaugh if he had, quote, any documents that appeared to you to have been drafted or prepared by Democratic staff, uh, staff members of the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee, Kavanaugh responded unequivocally, no, as you write. Um, is this a case where uh, Hatch, uh, you know, sort of gave him, uh, if you will, an escape hatch um, by, say, you know, asking whether it appeared to you? So even if we went back to that uh, exchange now, uh, Kavanaugh would be able to say, well, it didn't appear to me at the time that these were stolen Democratic memos. Did he uh, give him that escape route with his line of questioning back in 2004? Well, I, I think that at that time, you know, this, was, this was just a few weeks after the result of that investigation. Mm-hmm. I, think that, I think that Hatch had probably been assured um, that that had not happened um, because he asked a very 
um, specific question about whether the question was precisely, did Mr. Miranda ever share, reference, mm-hmm. or provide you with any documents that appeared to you to have been drafted or prepared by Democratic staff members of the Senate Judiciary Committee? And Brett Kavanaugh answered under oath, no, I was not aware of that matter ever mm. until I learned of it in the media late last year. Um, it's clear It's clear from the documents that the small number of documents that have come out as part of this hearing uh, for the very first time that, in fact, he was provided with documents that certainly appeared to be drafted by the Democratic staff of the Senate Judiciary Committee. They were about judicial nominations. They were Democratic talking points. They were letters uh, among uh, confidential letters between chairs, uh-huh. between Democratic staffers. And so... Um, I don't think he has an escape hatch with the appeared because it, they appeared on their face. Yeah, uh, the content appeared on their face to be from Democratic staff members. It, it, it sure does seem like he was. Uh, he he has been. He is uh, busted. Period on this. Given what we what we know from the Democrat from the uh, documents that we did see, the Democrats were able to shake loose. There's still a, little, a lot of documents that we didn't. But uh, I'm I'm curious. I watched a lot of the uh, hearings uh, over the past week. But did. Orrin Hatch follow up on uh, Patrick Leahy's concern. I guess this is one of the upsides of having really old people in the Senate. They were there all of these years ago. Uh, so after Leahy's a line of questioning to Kavanaugh on this, which seems to have caught him off guard, uh, did did you notice, uh, did Hatch follow up at all? After all, you know, Orrin Hatch was one of the folks who was just furious about President Bill Clinton uh, lying under oath all those years ago, leading to the impeachment of Bill Clinton. So was Hatch similarly concerned about these new revelations, as far as you can tell? Uh, I don't believe he did, but I'll I'll go back and double check the record. I I was able to watch most of the hearing, but not Mm -hmm. every single minute of it. And so um, I'll go back and and double check. Um, But I think, you know, certainly the Republicans, many of them were asking, you know, softball questions Mm -hmm. um, to Brett Kavanaugh and also some of them were sort of making their case, in essence, for future Supreme Court uh, rulings, um, as with Senator Mike Lee mm-hmm. and others, in terms of trying to uh, attack the idea of you know federal lands and and try to you know plant those seeds uh, in his in Brett Kavanaugh's mind about you know other ways uh, that he could um, perhaps rule in the future, I suppose. Oh, oh um, yeah, I mean, they, I, they obviously they had other things on their mind, but I mean, for crying out loud, you got uh, one of these emails has the subject line spying uh, and, uh, you know, Leahy asked about it. This uh, essentially Kavanaugh is making sort of a liar out of Orrin Hatch, who vouched for him all these years ago. It was Orrin Hatch who was lied to. You would think that uh, he would be none too happy about this, but uh, I guess, well, at least neither you or I caught any evidence of that so far. Uh, So far, but I definitely will go back and check the record so you can tell your listeners um, Mm -hmm. if, in fact, he did and that we somehow missed it. Um, And we'll see what happens in the written questions. It's possible that the Republicans will try to give him escape hatches in written questions mm-hmm. to try to um, to try to get around his very unequivocal statement that he had not uh, seen these files but there's but this is part of a uh, a number of statements that people have drawn attention to um, where um, Brett Kavanaugh has said one thing and the evidence uh, is contrary to that the documentary evidence or the um, facts um, at issue um, are contrary to what he said. Um, my focus has been on this matter in part because I know it well, and I was particularly shocked and astonished 
that he would assert that uh, obtaining information from the Democratic uh, from Democratic staffers about their uh, their strategic research, their strategy, the timing of um, mm-hmm. of uh, these these matters, and more was somehow a normal part of the exchange of information in the Senate. Uh, it certainly was not. We were uh, in the midst of the most heated battles uh, in that entire session of the Senate, as you as you may recall. Mm-hmm. Um, we were uh, the United States was um, uh, in war at war in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, there were a lot of issues coming out, beginning to come out, for example, about torture. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a lot of controversial issues that emerged in that period, but the most controversial and most um, uh, consistently controversial uh, heated battles was over, over nominations, and not a single Republican defected um, in the face of those battles to join the Democrats to oppose even one of these um, nominees who um, had such extreme records. And so uh, this was an area where, unlike with legislation, where there there might be common ground mm-hmm. on, a, for instance, a bankruptcy bill or something like that, where members are saying, oh, I've got this concern. Can the witness address this concern uh, about a bill? Um, that wasn't happening with these nominations. And in fact, if a, if a particular senator had a question for a nominee um, himself or herself, um, before hearing and um, meeting a member for meeting a member meeting between a member and a senator uh, uh, a, a nominee, mm-hmm. that senator might say, you know, I'm worried about your um, background on this or that um, in that meeting. But that's not what he was being provided. What he was being provided by by Miranda was the content, um, the core insights from uh, Democratic staff uh, memos, uh, documents, letters, talking points, emails that Miranda was taking uh, and using to try to get those nominees through. And and Miranda was the um, top counsel for Senator Bill Frist. He had previously been counsel on the Senate Judiciary Committee for Chairman Hatch in 2002, from the end of 2001 to the really beginning of 2003, uh, but for basically a little more than a mm-hmm. year. And then he became um, the chief lawyer for Senator Bill Frist, who was the majority leader. And, and-, uh, and they were consumed with trying to push these judges through, and he was working closely with the White House uh, to try to jam those judges through the Senate, and of course, as you as you describe all of that, and you talk about the extreme records of these uh, judges who they were trying to push through, uh, part of me says, never mind their extreme records. This guy, at least, appears to have been involved with stolen documents, stolen email documents. I mean, that's beyond uh, their uh, you know particular political record, it seems to me. Uh, I've got uh, just a few minutes here at Lisa Graves, but I want to talk about the uh, potential uh, impeachment remedy that you raise. But very quickly, what would you have done as, as sort of a... Uh, a Democratic counterpoint to uh, Miranda or or Kavanaugh here. If if you had been presented with similar documents that appeared to be, uh, you know, to include unreleased Republican talking points, etc. In other in other words, what should Kavanaugh have done with those documents in that case? Now that we know that he received them, and he knows that we know that he received them. What would have been the proper well, in fact, process? In, in, in fact, in the um, in the small number of emails that have been released, um, and 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 I must point out that there are more than a hundred thousand mm-hmm. documents pages that have not been released that right. the White House has tried to throw a cover of secrecy over in blanket without any privilege log, without any process, try to keep them from the American people. 
Um, in fact, you know, the normal practice on judiciary was, for example, if, if you even sent an inadvertent email to the wrong person uh, who had a same or similar name, you know, mm-hmm. uh, one, one um, person, one Alex versus another Alex, mm-hmm. um, uh, if you learned that your email had been sent erroneously or you received someone's erroneous email, you would contact that staffer and, and let them know that you received it and, and delete it. Um, that was actually the profession, the level of professionalism that we operated under, and um, that, that was the level of professionalism that I expected from my colleagues, even as we were in these battles. And you know, this isn't this isn't some sort of whistleblower. This is someone who was inside the Senate, take, taking those files, stealing those files mm-hmm. from the United States Senate of the United States of America, from sitting from the from the uh, files of sitting elected representative senators to the United States Senate. It's a big deal yeah, for it, him to, to it, have taken those files and to have used them that way. And, and, and Kavanaugh, uh, I believe the testimony is quite clear compared to the evidence that he lied about any knowledge of that. I believe he had knowledge of that, and I think the record shows that. Yeah, it, it is a, a, a very big deal. And you also note in your conclusion at Slate that uh, by Kavanaugh's own standards, he should clearly be impeached. Uh, we should note that uh, Kavanaugh was on the uh, on the Ken Starr team working on the impeachment of Bill Clinton for... Uh, yes, supposedly lying during sworn testimony. So by his own standard, yeah, it does seem like he should be impeached. But uh, Lisa, have you been in, in, in touch with um, with Senator Leahy since these emails, uh, these old ones, but newly released, uh, have come out? And do you have any sense if he or the Democrats in the House, I guess, where any impeachment proceedings for a federal judge uh, would need to begin, uh, whether they're discussing the idea of impeaching Kavanaugh, whether he is confirmed or not, even if he's not confirmed, he would still presumably continue serving as a federal judge on the D.C. Uh, Court of Appeals. So have you heard from your uh, former colleagues in uh, in the Congress about whether this might be something they will move forward? No, I have not spoken with Senator Leahy, and I haven't spoken with any of the senators. Um, I, I have been... Uh, and I have not spoken with uh, I have not spoken with uh, the chairman or the ranking member I suppose now of the of the House Judiciary Committee where this would uh, uh, presumably begin if it were to begin. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I I believe that it's it's important for those members to make their own independent determination of this. I think the evidence is is very strong and warrants a full investigation. Um, I am not trying to. Um, uh, you know, personally lobby them to do any of that. I I believe that the American people have a right to know that this is what's happening, and I believe the Senate should stand up and defend itself uh, against this sort of uh, perjury. In my view, in my opinion, that it should reject uh, this uh, this um, type of candidate. There are certainly other uh, right wing judicial nominees that the uh, White House could nominate who don't have this track record, who haven't played this role. And um, and who uh, perhaps also don't have this uh, extreme view of executive power, where um, if Brett Kavanaugh were confirmed, he could be um, called to rule on cases involving uh, cases of, of potential perjury or lying to investigators uh, of the Trump administration, given the state of the, of, of the land. Um, I think it's extraordinary what's happening in this country with this nomination at this time, where you have the president himself implicated in uh, 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 criminal activity, uh, certainly his closest aides, um, and some of whom have, whom have, whom, some of whom have 
have been have either pleaded guilty or been found guilty of serious crimes. Uh, some of which are related to him and some of which are not. But the fact is is that this is an extraordinary moment and to try to dram, jam through the Senate someone who has this record, who um, who has, in my view, lied to the Senate itself about documents that were stolen from the Senate itself um, is an extremely serious matter. Boy, howdy, do I agree with you. Lisa Graves, uh, formerly the Chief Counsel for Nominations for the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee, uh, now the co-founder of DocumentedInvestigations.org. You can find uh, her work over there at DocumentedInvestigations.org, and you can find her on the Twitters at the Lisa Graves. Uh, Lisa, really appreciate you joining us uh, today. Let's hope to not make it so many years until we do it again. Uh, as a matter of fact, if this moves forward, I'd lo- love to stay in touch with you about it. That'd be great, Brad. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lisa. Okay, quick break, and we are back with our Green News Report on a very busy day for the climate as well. Sadly, I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Nice to figure out how to stop this hurricane coming uh, into the yeah. East Coast right around now. I've got a, a point that I want to follow up on uh, from our Green News report today. So let's get to it. Our latest Green News report. I have already ordered the mandatory evacuation of all people in all of the evacuation zones. Powerful Hurricane Florence takes aim at the U.S. East Coast. Tropical storm watch is in effect for a good portion of Hawaii. While Hawaii braces for its second major storm in two weeks. Brand new pipeline explodes in Pennsylvania. Plus... This bill and the executive order that I'm going to sign will put California on a path to the goals to meet the Paris Agreement. And beyond. California blazes a new path of action to fight climate change. All of those paths and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Look at the size of this thing. No need to brag, Ali Velshi. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, well, last week we hit 900 Green News reports. So this week, it seems the climate is doubling down on us. Yeah, nature seems kind of mad. Several states have declared states of emergency ahead of Hurricane Florence, which is on track for a direct hit along the U.S. East Coast as a potentially catastrophic Category 4 storm fueled by extremely warm Atlantic Ocean waters. South Carolina's Governor Henry McMaster on Monday urged coastal residents to please heed mandatory evacuation orders while they still can. We do not want to risk one South Carolina life 
in this hurricane. Hurricane Florence is packing dangerous storm surge and high winds, but forecasters warn it may stall in place, potentially dumping Hurricane Harvey levels of rainfall, triggering record inland flooding. AP reports that in Florence's potential flood zone are six nuclear power plants, toxic coal ash waste ponds, and hundreds of massive open pit hog manure lagoons. All of which, if the amount of rain that is now predicted to come in uh, could flood, could get into the water supply. This is a very scary situation. On the other side of the world, in the Pacific, Hawaii Governor David Ige has declared a state of emergency for the second time in two weeks in advance of Tropical Storm Olivia, Hawaii's second big storm impact in those two weeks. Two weeks ago, Hawaii saw the second largest rainfall event on record in the United States caused by Hurricane Lane, which was second only to Hurricane Harvey one year ago. The increase in frequency and intensity of extreme weather events is in line with climate scientists' predictions for what we would expect with global warming. You know, it would be nice if the scientists got it wrong every now and again these days. In Pennsylvania, an underground natural gas pipeline exploded before dawn on Monday, destroying a home, two garages, and several cars, plus overhead power lines, knocking out power to 1,500 residents. No injuries or deaths have been reported, thankfully, and no cause has yet been determined. The new pipeline went online only one week ago. Brand new pipeline, one of these pipelines, they tell us, oh, we're using brand new technology. Nothing to worry about here. Apparently... There's a whole lot to worry about here. But some good news, some pipeline accountability in California, where a jury has found Texas-based Plains All-American Pipeline Company guilty on felony criminal charges in a major oil pipeline spill in 2015 that fouled beaches and killed marine life and birds near Santa Barbara. Also in California, in a rebuke to the Trump administration's efforts to expand offshore drilling, Democratic Governor Jerry Brown has signed two state bills permanently blocking all new federal drilling for oil and gas in state waters and barring any expansion of existing oil and gas infrastructure that would ship offshore oil and gas across to state lands. But that's not even the biggest good news coming out of California. No, it is not. On Monday, Governor Brown also signed the landmark SB 100, legally committing the state to meeting the target of 100 percent carbon-free electricity by 2045. Now that is a huge deal all on its own. But in a surprise move, Brown went even further, signing an executive order requiring the entire state, the world's fifth largest economy, to become 100 percent carbon neutral by 2045, covering all emissions, including cars, and then moving to negative carbon emissions after 2045. It is the most ambitious goal of any government in the world. In a press conference, Brown said California is committed to transitioning to clean energy and meeting the targets of the United Nations Paris Climate Agreement and beyond. It's not going to be easy, and it will not be immediate, but it must be done. California is committed to doing whatever is necessary to meet the existential threat of climate change. And yes, it is an existential threat. No matter what the naysayers may say, it is a real present danger to California and to the people of the world. When Donald Trump pulled out of the Paris Climate Agreement, Jerry Brown said, "Okay, we'll take the lead out here in California. Looks like he's trying to make good on that promise. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. My thanks to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate. 
To help us celebrate our 900th episode of the Green News Report, if you haven't done so already, it's not too late. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. So uh, good for California. Yeah. Kind of tired of saying good for California because that's uh, like the only state that we get to say that about lately. Uh, <laughs> for, but now. for now. Um, uh, although we should note that Hawaii, by the way, was the first to go to that mandate for carbon-free energy uh, electricity by 2045. Right, but they're a so much smaller economy. Much they fewer are, people. and of course now they're facing another uh, huge storm. Yes. In any case, one point I wanted to hit, hit real quickly here. You mentioned that uh, pipeline in Pennsylvania that exploded. That was uh, a natural gas pipeline owned by Energy Transfer Partners. If that name sounds familiar to you, they are the same company who own the Dakota Access Pipeline that the Standing Rock Sioux uh, tried to block back in 2016, which was eventually put in place thanks to the Trump administration. But uh, back uh, uh, during that standoff as well, Energy Transfer Partners, as all of these companies do, were all telling us how, oh, this is new technology. They don't leak. They don't explode. You have nothing to worry about. Well, this was how old? A week old in Pennsylvania? Yes, it, it wasn't even in full operation. By the same company, Energy Transfer Partners out of Texas. And I'll just say, all pipelines spill. They always have. They always will. And with that excellent, encouraging news, I got to get out. <laughs> my thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, Lisa Graves of DocumentedInvestigations.org, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It is greatly appreciated as ever. If you missed any portion of today's show, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. Drop me an email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And find and follow me and share me on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the Brad Blog, and finally, my thanks to those of you. If you like what we do, uh, we need your support to do it. So, my thanks to those who stop by bradblog.com/slash/donate to help us continue our work here on both the Bradcast and the Green News Report. All right, that's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs> <laughs>